Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This is Famous and Gravy, the show where we study pop culture icons for what actually made life satisfying. Now for the opening quiz to reveal today's dead celebrity. This person died 2012, age 71. In the summer of 1961, she was a summer intern in the Kennedy White House. In a 2003 interview, she said she was probably the only intern that President John F. Kennedy had never hit on. Ooh. Diane Sawyer. Not Diane Sawyer. She's still alive? (laughs) Her second husband was the Watergate journalist Carl Bernstein. I don't know. I don't know. She was a journalist, a blogger, an essayist, a novelist, a playwright, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, and a movie director. A rarity in a film industry whose directorial ranks were and continued to be dominated by men. Ah, I think I know. I, uh, the name's escaping me. Um, oh, my gosh. Her box office successes included You've Got Mail, Julie and Julia, Sleepless in Seattle, and When Harry Met Sally. Wait, Nora Ephron? Today's dead celebrity is Nora Ephron. Oh, good. Okay. Oh, my God. You consider yourself a screenwriter first or a director first or... I'm a writer first. I don't even consider myself a screenwriter first. I consider myself a writer. I think the thing that I always say that is extremely boring and probably um, narcissistic to people who want to be screenwriters who are young is don't become a screenwriter. Go become a journalist like me. You see, that's the bad narcissistic part. And find out something and live a little while because you don't have anything to write screenplays about except your coming of age story and your summer camp story because you don't know anything. Welcome to Famous and Gravy. I'm Michael Osborne. And I'm Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we believe that the best years might lie ahead. So we choose a celebrity who died in the last 10 years and review their quality of life. We go through a series of categories to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, Nora Ephron died 2012, age 71. Okay, I have to chime in here because Mm -hmm. you said 2012. As our listeners know, we have a rule. We only cover celebrities who died within the last 10 years. So we had Nora Ephron on our docket for the fall of last year because we had some other opportunities show up. She kind of got pushed out and then out of that 10-year window. So we are allowing ourselves a little grace, a little cheat day. Which, I mean, just to say it, that flexibility is part of what we've learned as part of this podcast. Every now and then you got to break the rules. Yeah, I think we even said that in a recent interview, that uh, that's probably one of my biggest learnings is allow yourself a little less rigidity. Well, that's an excellent segue to introduce today's expert guest, Aaron Carlson. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're really happy to have you here. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm happy to be here. Erin Carlson is a culture and entertainment journalist. She's got many accomplishments. Among them, she's written three Hollywood history books, one uh, on Meryl Streep called Queen Meryl, an upcoming book, which I'm really excited about, called No Crying in Baseball, the inside story of A League of Their Own. I always had a soft spot for that movie. And then, you know, what is appropriate for today's conversation, Aaron wrote a book called I'll Have What She's Having, How Nora Ephron's Three Iconic Films Saved the Romantic Comedy. I'll Have What She's Having. So that title is a reference to the very famous line in When Harry Met Sally after Meg Ryan uh, fakes an orgasm in a New York deli. Yes! 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 Oh! Oh, God. I'll have what she's having. In reading your book, the scene, then like the day of that shot in When Harry Met Sally and everything going on there, like... Carl Reiner has his mother say, I'll have what she's having. So she's sitting right there and Carl Reiner's like, oh, wait a sec. What the fuck was I thinking when I decided to shoot this scene with my mother in the room? 
it was a scene that really leapt out for me. I really enjoyed that in your book. So embarrassing. I mean, <laughs> he didn't want to do it in front of his mother, but Meg was too scared. She was too shy. She's like, what will my boyfriend Dennis Quaid think? Yeah. And, and Reiner was like, it's supposed to be funny. So he sat down and acted it out. Yeah. And cats yeah, that's right. That's and right. And started right. sweating, <laughs> flop sweat everywhere. Yeah. And then Meg's like, okay, got it. Got it. She's a total pro. She sat there and nailed like take after take. And meanwhile, Billy Crystal was sitting across from her and he's like, I don't have to do much. He was going up and getting deli sandwiches and sour tomatoes and just having the time of his life. Well, let's get into it. Category one, grading the first line of their obituary. Nora Ephron, an essayist and humorist in the Dorothy Parker mold, only smarter and funnier, some said, who became one of her era's most successful screenwriters and filmmakers, making romantic comedy hits like Sleepless in Seattle and When Harry Met Sally, died on Tuesday in Manhattan. She was 71. This is the first time I remember seeing one with a parentheses. Oh, is there? I've been I, I, on audio that doesn't come through. Uh, I'll do it again. An essayist and humorist in the Dorothy Parker mold, open parentheses, only smarter and funnier, comma, some said, close parentheses, who became, so it was like their way of getting a lot more words in there. This whole Dorothy Parker, I don't, okay. So that's question number one for me. Who is Dorothy Parker? And maybe Aaron wants to take that. Aaron, who's Dorothy Parker? Oh my God, Dorothy Parker was a famous, like, essayist, um, and humorous, just like Nora, um, in the, in mid century. And she was known for her pithy one-liners and her wit. And she sat at the Algonquin round table in Manhattan. She was the only woman writer at the table and she created a persona around herself. She built herself into a myth and she inspired a lot of younger women writers like Nora to want to move to New York City and become a famous lady writer. And Nora really sought that. She wanted to become Dorothy Parker. I think I read something about Nora Ephron attacking Dorothy Parker or saying something not great about her. Am I misremembering this? Because I read that biography you suggested. Yeah, I'm surprised that's there because... um, So Nora wrote very uh, brutal essays about women in the media, like Helen Burley Brown, you know, famed editor of Cosmopolitan. And she also wrote an essay about Dorothy Parker that sort of shattered the myth of Dorothy Parker and uh, Nora's perception of her. Okay, let's pause on all that. It's amazing that there's this unbelievably rich and hidden history in what is almost a parenthesis in the first line of Nora Ephron's obituary yeah. line. Amit, your reaction to some of this? Uh, <laughs> I don't like it at all. I mean, I think with Aaron's explanation, I think it makes perfect sense and it's wonderful, but I don't think that many people know who Dorothy Parker is, and I don't think that's first line material, no matter how much she may have influenced Nora Ephron. And I think it's just doing too much of the work that other words could do. If Dorothy Parker was somebody so adept at one-liners, who was whip-smart and who penetrated these circles, otherwise occupied predominantly by men, I think that's better said in direct language. I think it's interesting, one, that they reference her, and then in parentheses say, only smarter and funnier, comma, some said. I'd like a little attribution on that. In, as a journal, the word some means myself, the writer. Right. Some <laughs> said means I said that. <laughs> You're hiding behind that, you obit writer. Um, oh, so There's no such thing as objectivity, exactly. and Nora knew son that. Son of an obit writer. Exactly, okay. son of an obit writer. So, okay, so that part, if we were to remove that, if it were just Nora Ephron, an essayist and humorist who became one of the era's most successful screenwriters and filmmakers, making romantic comedy hits like Sleepless in Seattle and When Harry Met Sally. Most of that is great. I like that they say essayist and humorist, too. Like, they really point to, one, she's a writer, which is what essayist means to me, and two, humorist, that she's funny as shit. The book's called I Remember Nothing, and this is the piece called I Remember Nothing. Sometimes I'm forced to conclude that I remember nothing. For example, I went to stand in front of the White House the night Nixon resigned 
And here's what I have to tell you about it. My wallet was stolen. <laughs> I went to at least 100 Knicks games, and I remember only the night that Reggie Miller scored eight points in the last nine seconds. I was not at Woodstock, but I might as well have been because I wouldn't remember it anyway. <laughs> on some level, my life has been wasted on me. After all, if I can't remember it, who can? Ahmed, uh, your your take on some of this. I mean, I don't know. I feel like we've we've honed in on some real problems with this. I'm ready for score. So I I do love that they included beyond the movie career. Yes, I agree. The SAS and journalist, I think that's hugely important. I think not enough people know that. And it is so largely influential on the greater public and culture. I think the inclusion of the two movies they had were fine. So totally good with those things. Hate, hate, hate that they're letting Dorothy Parker do all the work in totally. all the adjectives that should describe the things like whip smart one-liners, etc. Hate the sum said. So all deductions are for that. Minus five points for that. I'm landing on a five. That's exactly what I got. I was going to give it a five. I thought about maybe bumping it to a six because there is one thing we haven't talked about. Died on Tuesday night in Manhattan. They didn't say in New York. They said in Manhattan. Ah, And she's such a Manhattan figure for me that I really love that little inclusion every now and then. They tag like when Louis Anderson died in Las Vegas. But I I agree, Amit. I I love essayist and humor. I I completely agree with your analysis. Five out of ten. Hate the Dorothy Parker and some said. And then essayist and humorist and then Manhattan all adds up to a five for me. Aaron. I agree with you all. Uh, The Dorothy Parker just distracts from Nora's own legend that stands on its own. The sum said is ridiculous. You know, in tribute to Nora, say I said. Right. You know, say something declarative. (laughs) Own your opinion. Totally. Totally. But I want to give it six for Manhattan. So five, five, and six. Ah, you, you can do better, New York Times. Let's move on. Category two, five things I love about you. Here we work together to come up with five reasons why we love this person, why we want to be talking about them in the first place. Aaron, before you leave us, do you have a thing you love about Nora Ephron that you would like to contribute to this category? Gosh, I'm like Tom Hanks in Sleepless in Seattle on the radio with Dr. Marsha Fieldstone. Sam, tell me what was so special about your wife. How long is your program? I love her joie de vivre. She didn't waste a second of her life. And it wasn't just movies. It was she loved cooking. She uh, published a cookbook full of her favorite recipes. And she was an amazing hostess. And she liked throwing dinner parties. Her love of life that was beyond who she was. It was beyond... Um, She's an essayist and a humorist and a screenwriter. It was the whole giant, you know, arc of her life that encompassed her joie de vivre. Joie de vivre. I love that terminology. Amit? But I I think that's a a perfect encapsulation of everything that I understand about her. Yeah, I mean, and when I hear that, uh, I guess I hear Latin, I hear carpe diem or something. It's not just that. There is a sort of like, get the most out of life. That's what I understand joie de vie to mean. It's live for the day, but it's also, yeah, a zest for life, like a passion for it. Like life has so many experiences, sensory and intellectual and communal to offer. And I do think that, I think it's sometimes mistaken for ambition, and maybe it overlaps with ambition. But there is something about her character that is very like, damn, she's doing it. She's living. So I think that that's a wonderful thing, one, to contribute. Aaron, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really fun to have you. And uh, actually, real quick, when does uh, your book publish? September 5th. Okay, so uh, we will link to it in the show notes, and uh, I can't wait to uh, get a copy myself. Aaron, thank you so much again for coming. Really appreciate you making the time. That was awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, you guys. Have a really good show, and you're really fun. (laughs) Thank you. It was great spending time with you today. What I will miss. My kids. Nick. Spring. Fall. Butter. A walk in the park, dinner with friends in cities where none of us lives. One for the table, 
the dogwood, taking a bath, pie. Thing number one, joie de vie. Amit, do you want to lead us with number two? I do, because I think what Erin said, kind of hinting at her resilience, Mm. has a lot to do with one of my five things. Oh, Uh, okay. And what I'm going to say is giant flop. Oh, interesting. So we talked about it in the obituary, Sleepless in Seattle, and When Harry Met Sally. And then there's all the other things that, you know, the heartbreak obviously referred to, You've Got Mail. But she had major, major flops. Huge. And that is one of the things that I love about her. So uh, I think three of the biggest box office flops that she produced, and this was all after essentially Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, Mixed Nuts, Lucky Numbers, Hanging Up, even Heartbreak was a commercial flop for the first year until a critic picked it up. So this is a woman that we know for these Hallmark successes, but there are many major, major flops in between. Yeah, if you look at her uh, awards, Bewitched, I think, was nominated for several Razzies. As, and are you familiar with Razzies? It's like an insult award, right? Like, yeah, worst, it's like worst. this is the worst movie of the year award. Um, yeah. It's like so terrible. We should, we should note how just how god-awful it is. Yeah, so the thing I love is who gives a damn, right? Bounce back from the flop. And she did that. I mean, the way I understand from reading about it and hearing her interviews is like, she took it a lot to heart. She hated the flops. But if you're going to talk about it in the totality of life and the fact that you can have many major, huge flops, yet still be a topic on a show like this is very, very important to know. Not everything has to be a home run. Not everything even has to be a base hit. You can completely strike out very frequently and still have a hugely successful, significant, impactful, and fulfilling and happy career. I watched her uh, Wellesley um, commencement speech. It's a fairly famous commencement speech from, I think, 1996 or 1998, something like that. And one of the things she tells these graduates is that... What are you going to do? Everything is my guess. It will be a little messy, but embrace the mess. And don't be frightened, you can always change your mind. I know, I've had four careers and three husbands. Which was, a, you know, I think speaks to that point. It's not just professionally and, and creatively flopping. I think that there are some, oh, that didn't go well, I need to change what I did life decision-wise uh, aspects of her resilience, to your point. Yep. Okay, shall I take number three? Yep. I'm going to go with Legendary Party Thrower. I know this came up in the Diego Maradona episode, and it's come up a few times on our show, what it means to throw a great party. Her parties were apparently legendary. So she is a like next-level chef. She's a total foodie before there were foodies, but also like loves being in the kitchen. This was part of the reason she was so excited to work on the Julie and Julia project. But she's also like an insane conversationalist. I mean, Nora Ephron is really smart and I think would be just a delight to talk to and to like be in a conversation with. And I think she's the kind of person where if she's throwing a party, like there's going to be great cocktail chatter all around it. And, you know, she floats in this company that I find really sort of enviable. I mean, it's very Manhattan and, you know, Mike Nichols or Rob Reiner or, you know, Meryl Streep. I mean, there's celebrities there, but you also, there's a sort of intelligentsia community that I think surrounds Nora Ephron, you know, between, you know, arts, culture, journalism, and and, and so forth. I would love to go to a Nora Ephron party. She's a legendary party thrower. And that's something I wish, that's something I want to do in my life. That's desirable to me. I want to you know, be the kind of guy who's like, Michael Osborne's having a party. There's going to be great food. There's going to be great conversation. You're going to meet interesting people and you're going to feel like you belong in sort of a really special community. So I find it really desirable. And that's my thing. Number three. Yeah, I like it. Let me cap that with uh, her own funeral. So she set aside in her will $100,000 $100,000 that she wanted spent on her memorial service. And she wanted it like That's she planned it. Well done. She wanted top end pink champagne. Yeah. And the other thing is, like, from what I understand about these parties that she threw in the 70s, is they were equivalent to like what I would call a parlor. 
if you think about like midnight, the movie Midnight in Paris, and you picture like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and right. all, all these, these like all great these, writers like, from the twenties, yeah. But musicians, writers, everything—you just yeah. had ideas flowing and booze flowing and whatever. That's that was my understanding of some of these gatherings that Nora Ephron through and even when she didn't really have the credibility of the chops she would go up to people and be like i'm nora Ephron. you want to come to a legendary party at my house totally yeah i heard that story a few times you said uh, i one thing you were saying about the throwing your a party for your own funeral joie de vie even if you're not vivant you know yes all right why don't you take number four uh number four mentorship you know, in both the documentary about her that her son threw and in several of the interviews that I heard, a lot of people referred to Nora Ephron as their mentor. And three of the names that were significant to me were Rita Wilson, Lena Dunham, and her own sister, Delia Ephron. And so I think that is wonderful because here is a woman, and we haven't gotten into the backstory of her life, but she came from a Hollywood family. Her parents were also sort of in Hollywood screenwriter type of things. They were both alcoholics. Alcoholism essentially killed her mother when she was a teenager, right? So she had kind of this, a little bit of absentee parentism. And the fact that she saw it as so important to pass on and educate and how important that is, that she has a gift. And in addition to making masterpieces, another way to pass on and live out your legacy is to mentor others. And I love that she saw that and she invited it. Do you feel like you're at a point in life where that's happening for you? Where people are asking you to be a mentor of sorts? It's a little bit. It's come up. But frankly, I think we had this conversation on our hike the other day, Michael. I feel I'm in the opposite camp. I want one. I think both things can be true. I think it's important that both are true, to learn and give at the same time. Yeah, I agree. Exactly. I mean, Adam yeah. Grant's whole book, Give and Take, is is sort of about that. Yeah. And especially as you're in this stage that we are. I mean, we're mid-40s, but I think this applies to anybody in age, say, mid-30 to 60. Yeah. Have a mentor and be a mentor. Neither of which I do, but... I know that actually not to be true. And, you know, look, man, I think mentors don't necessarily have to be above or below. I think they can also be lateral mentorship. And in and, and that, in some ways, man, don't let this go to your head, but I look at you as a mentor at times. I don't necessarily tell myself I'm going to put Ahmed in mentor mode here, but certainly one of the reasons I wanted to start this show to begin with is because I think there's a lot I can learn from you. And I think it is a good mentality overall, as you said, to be both seeking mentorship and offering it. In both directions, that is service to humanity. That is service to those around you. And I think it's highly desirable and something that we should like have as part of our daily aspirations. Totally. And, and thank you for what you said. All right. Does that mean I get number five? That means you get number five, my mentee. <laughs> Easy. Can I, I give you a Ninja Turtle name now? <laughs> I wrote conflicted romantic. One thing that's surprising, and we're going to get into it, about Nora Ephron is that she's not a softie. You watch these movies, Sleepless in Seattle, Harry Met Sally, you know, Julia and Julia, and you kind of think like, oh, she's just a sort of sweet and hopeless romantic. And no, 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 no. This is a fierce woman. This is a biting, you know, she's got ambition and determination, a, a sharp intellect, a wit, which seems to stand in contrast to the kind of, I don't know, lovely leading figures that you see in the Meg Ryan characters in these movies. We've already missed the spring. An Affair to Remember is a kind of fantastic, weepy woman's movie in not necessarily a good sense of a woman's movie. It's really kind of hooking into those pathetic female fantasies. What we were trying to do in Sleepless was hook into a completely different romantic fantasy, which was, what if there's one perfect person for me somewhere out there and I never find him? What if I never meet him? What if this man is my destiny and I never meet him? But I also think she's still a romantic. I think that it is possible to believe in happily ever after on some level and also be really realistic about how rough the world is, how discriminatory the world is, 
how hard life is. And so the reason I wrote Conflicted Romantic is that I don't think she's naive in her steadfast belief in a kind of happily ever after, or for that matter, belief that your soulmate might be out there conviction, because I think Nora Ephron holds that. But I also think she does it while being very realistic and intelligent and the opposite of naive. I see that conflict in her, and I admire that. I also desire that, because I want to have that worldview too. I want to believe in true love. I want to believe in soulmates, even if life does deal you you know, some really rough uh, cards at times. Yeah, I think that's really well said, especially, you know, two divorces and she finally makes it later and, and we'll get into this in that category. But yeah, it seems like she truly believed in the human spirit and the importance and existence of unconditional love. And I shouldn't even say importance. I would say the elevated importance, that it is everything and that it is always possible at any age, at any state, and maybe it comes when you're not looking. Well said. Okay, let's recap. Number one, Aaron said joie de vie. Number two, you said... Major flops. Number three, I said a legendary party thrower. Number four, you said... Mentorship. Both giving and receiving. And number five, uh, I said conflicted romantic. Let's take a break. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, category three. Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Being John Malkovich, in which people take a little portal into John Malkovich's mind, and they can have a front row seat to his experiences. All right, I'm a little 
conflicted about what I'm going to say because I Are wondered, you gonna, you're a conflicted romantic about what you're. I'm about a to conflicted. Say? Well, and it gets even more deep than that. I wrote "Catching Carl" as my Malkovich moment, and I was hesitant to bring it up because I do think this is painful for Nora Ephron and everybody involved. But we'll get into this more in the marriage category. Nora Ephron was married to Carl Bernstein when she is pregnant with her second child. Seven months pregnant, she discovers he's been cheating on her. Oh, that's what you mean by catching. Okay, I thought you were talking about the initial spark. No, okay, I meant, it, I meant catching him in the act. She, Nora Ephron goes on to write a book, Heartburn, which gets made into a movie starring Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. And it's a, it's a well-known public painful point in her life. Here's why I chose it as my Malkovich moment. Her parents, as you mentioned a second ago, developed a real problem with drinking. And her dad cheated on her mom a lot. One of the things that, you know, you hear a lot about Nora Ephron's life, everything is copy, meaning, or at least I interpret that to mean, we are all the authors of our own lives. The way I hear the story about her discovering that her husband's been unfaithful to her was that she felt, at least for a moment, that despite her best efforts, she wound up making the same mistake her mother made. I think she was smart enough to see that pattern because she knew her parents' history well enough, and I think she saw it through that lens. It is one of the two times in her life where this motto, everything is copy, meaning you get to interpret the events of your lives through writing and through storytelling gets really challenged because I'm not sure that there is a whole lot of opportunity in this moment of, oh shit, I made the same mistake as my mom to interpret it any other way. Do you see what I'm trying to like draw attention to with this Malkovich moment, Amit? Yeah. I think in this moment, she doesn't have that freedom. I think that that's true again, by the way, at her death. And you hear people say that, that the one time that everything is copied did not apply was when she was faced with her own mortality. We'll get to that later. But that's my Malkovich moment. I want to know what it feels like to confront two conflicting interpretations of what a life is all about. Nice. I, I like that you isolated the exact moment of catching because I think the larger narrative is she wrote a book about it, which became a famous movie. And it seems like so, like she had so much agency and so much control over the narrative. But you don't. You don't over that actual present moment, and that's what you're really interested in. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. You put it well. All right, Amit, you're Malkovich. Yeah, so um, do you like the movie Swingers? Love the movie Swingers. Okay, do you remember that moment at the beginning where John Favreau is, is still very heartbroken, and he's talking about like going out and trying to meet girls, and he's like, I spent half the night talking to some girl who's looking around the room to see if there's somebody else who's more important she should be talking to. And it's like, I'm supposed to be all happy because uh, she's wearing a backpack. I, <laughs> yeah, do you remember that line? Be, yes, I do. <laughs> uh, that, that image just came to mind as I heard the story that I'm about to tell. Okay. And much like yours, this has very little to do with Nora Ephron's Hollywood career. This is life. So Nora Ephron was known for many things. She was known for being very staunch, very strong in her opinions, having the last word. Things had to be her idea. Things had to be perfect. And her sister tells this story that she was in a boutique in New York and saw a backpack purse, which she thought was very great and would be great for Nora. And so she gives it to Nora as a gift. And Nora was legendary for not really receiving gifts and returning them or discarding them. And she kind of knew this. Uh, Delia kind of knew this. So a few weeks later, Delia is back in the same store in which she bought the purse. And she sees this backpack purse back in the store. And there was only one. So she <laughs> knows for an absolute fact that her sister Nora had returned the purse. Yeah. Okay. okay. And Delia says, okay, I really like this purse. I'm going to buy it for myself. Sometime later, she's seeing her sister, Nora, and Nora's like, oh, that is such a cute backpack purse. I need to get that. And Delia <laughs> is like, I gave this to you <laughs> and you returned it. And this is what I want to know from the, what can only be described as a Malkovich moment is what she was thinking behind her eyes. And I want to know if she realized her fallibility. 
this is especially important to me because I am one of those. I am one of those that is kind of like hard to, I don't receive gifts very well. But there's a certain acknowledgement in this story that is like, yeah, you know what? Somebody does actually know your tastes and people do actually know your style. And maybe just possibly, you may actually have blind spots. And I'd really like to know if in this exact moment, when Delia says, you know what? I gave you that backpack already, if she recognized it. I think what you're getting at is humility. And I think it's a really interesting question, which will come up in a future category. But for now, category four, love and marriage. How many marriages? Also, how many kids? And is there anything public about these relationships? Well, this is fun. Okay, so there's Dan Greenberg, married 1967, divorced 1976. Nora was 26 uh, when they got married. They divorced around age 35, no kids. Second husband, we've talked about a lot already, Carl Bernstein. They were married in 1976. Nora was 35. The marriage falls apart and they divorce uh, in 1980. Nora's around 39. I should say, this was sort of interesting. And when I read the biography, she had a great relationship with her first husband. They remained friends so much so that when she was dating Carl Bernstein, like the three of them went out to dinner and he's like, oh, I'd like to meet the guy. That sounds like great. And they had, like the three of them were chummy around it all. So Dan actually sounds like a nice man. And then finally, her third husband, Nick Pelleggi. This is, uh, they were married in 1987. Nora's about 46 by this point, uh, and they were together until her death. He is notable because he's the author of a book called Wise Guys that gets made into Goodfellas. He also wrote Casino, which, so he's responsible in a sense for two Martin Scorsese movies. And this one is described as a soulmate kind of relationship, like a wonderful pairing. And one thing that's really funny here, you know, he's responsible for these Martin Scorsese hard guy movies, but he is apparently a big softy, uh, you know, real sweet kind of sensitive guy. And she's responsible for when Harry and Sally and Sleepless in Seattle, you know, these kind of softy movies, but she's a hard lady behind the scenes. So it's- That it's, is an interesting dynamic. I'm glad you pointed that out. Isn't that funny? Two children with Carl Bernstein, I think I said that, uh, one of whom, Jacob Bernstein, is a journalist and was responsible for the documentary about Nora Ephron. So where do you want to go with this one, Ahmed? I mean, I feel like we've talked about it so much already in her not giving up and her being a, uh, what was the word you used? Not cynical romantic, but... Uh, conflicted romantic. Conflicted romantic. And that she's not really giving up on the idea and she finally finds true everlasting love and pure happiness at the age of 46. And it seems to only get better from there. And I'm not even just talking about love and marriage here. That's sort of the big lesson from it all. But my biggest curiosity is all in the same profession. She's always married to writers. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Because that whole idea, everything is copy, that was something her mother said. Her mother was a working woman in an age where that was very, very uncommon. And I think her mother is a complicated character. And I, I guess I only draw attention to that because I do think that one thing that was true in the Efron or Efron family, like from the get-go, is writing really matters. Storytelling really matters. Everything is copy. These are words to live by. And so it's not surprising at all to me that she ended up marrying three writers. Your mother, uh, she meant a lot to you. My mother was a real piece of work. She was a screenwriter with my father, and she was so determined that all of her children would be writers. I mean, <laughs> what she would say to you, if you went to my mother and you said, oh, the worst thing happened to me today, she had no interest in it. She only wanted to hear about it when you had turned it into a story with a good punchline. All right, category five, net worth. I had to dig a little bit. I saw 40 million. I saw 40 million. I did. I saw yeah. a few things, a few numbers that were a little bit lower, but 40 million seemed to be the most consistent. Yeah. What was your reaction to that? Higher than I thought. I didn't. Really? Yeah. I always think in Hollywood, it's the actors that are bringing it all, but it, it actually is factual that the writers, directors, and producers. Are making and directors are making I mean, just I, as know, much. And that's just my yeah. own bias that pre-existed before, that when I see that somebody like her ended their, like when their life ended, they had $40 million in their account. I, I was a little surprised, but I think great. 
Yeah, I think great. I wasn't surprised. I did think, I mean, that her turn towards Hollywood is actually interesting because she was a journalist in the kind of new journalism mold of Tom Wolfe throughout much of the late 60s and 70s. Her way into screenwriting was actually through Carl Bernstein because his book about the Watergate impeachment gets adapted into the movie All the President's Men. At some point, Carl and Nora get a hold of that script and are like, Okay, this needs some real work. Yeah. So, uh, but the other thing to note there is that when she and Carl divorced, you know, she was at a low point financially. So most of that $40 million seems to come from the mid-80s onward. I don't know, man. These movies are huge. These were huge box office blockbusters. It's rare that writers are this level of famous. And I guess we'll get to that in the next category. But I'm, I, I wasn't surprised to see $40 million. Were you Were you expecting higher? No, I thought it was about right. If I had seen 30, that would have made sense. If I had seen 80, I guess I could have been like, wow, that's more than I would have expected. So this this looked and felt about right to me. Yeah, I mean, rich mm. woman, well-deserved. I don't think corruptible rich. She had expensive yeah. tastes. I think, that's a, I think that's all there is to say about it. All right, 40 million. Nice job, Nora. All right, category six, Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Halls of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include both guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. You ready? Yep. Oh, for 4. Now. From what I could see. You're talking about I her saw- specifically. Her specifically. Okay. I think the movies get parodied. and, and Infinitely, probably across all of those. But no guest appearances or direct references on The Simpsons, nothing on Saturday Night Live. I was really kind of hoping she and Arsenio Hall might have uh, had a conversation, but that didn't happen. And there is no Hollywood star that I could find. So, uh, you know, she was nominated for Academy Awards. But I actually, this kind of computed to me. I think that there's a difference between important and famous. And Nora Ephron is more important than she is famous in some ways, right? I I think that this is a figure for who a lot of people are like, I know that name. What do I know her from? I mean, her association with, you know, these very famous rom-coms, if you know her name, that's why you know her name. Um, I think this whole previous life as a journalist, that's something that a lot of us are going to forget, I suspect. So I don't know. I guess I wasn't surprised totally to see 0 for 4 here. I I am surprised. I'm very surprised at no Simpsons reference. I don't know if she would have asked to be voiced or her character, she would have appeared as a character, but at least referenced. Okay, let's move on. Category seven, over-under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year somebody was born to see if they beat the house odds and to look for signs of graceful aging. So the life expectancy for a woman born in the United States in 1941 was 668 she died at 71, so she is about four or five years over, but a pretty young death, I think, and, un- and certainly unexpected. Uh, well, she fought leukemia, which she kept largely a secret for yes. um, about six years, which was the cause of death. So if you take sort of those six years, which I think was 2006 was her diagnosis, and it was a secret, but you can kind of look at it retroactively of the work that she did and the life that she lived since that diagnosis. And I think she's the gold medal winner in grace, wrestling with aging gracefully and publicly. And I think a lot of that's been ascribed to her. I mean, she did Julia during that time. She wrote a lot of these memoirs, which were about conflicts with aging, you know, about letting go of your younger self, but also about embracing, you know, what is here and now. And I think a lot of her contemporaries and those people close to her said they've never seen as much joy and life and vibrancy in her as they did in her final years when they didn't even know she was dying of cancer. Other than memories, anything else wrong with getting older? I I don't think it's better to be older. I don't. No, no, I don't think so either. But I think that it doesn't have to be bad. No, it doesn't have to be bad. And and, And you have to know... But you have to know that at some point it will be. Oh, sure. And sooner rather than later. Which is why it's very important to eat your last meal before it actually comes up. When you are actually going to have your last meal, you either will be too sick to have it, or you aren't going to know it's your last meal, and you could squander it on something like a tuna melt. I do think that some of the secrecy was a 
professional consideration that she's not going to be able to, you know, land directorial jobs or screenwriting jobs if people think she's not going to be around to see those projects all the way through. So that that's one reason for keeping things sort of secret. But that's the thing I wanted to talk about with you here because I 100% agree. Gold medal winner for Grace, and I really like the way she handled herself from 2006 up into her death in 2012. Everything I see looks extremely admirable and graceful. But, you know, this has come up a few times on the show about keeping an illness, in this case, what turns out to be a terminal illness, secret. There are people in her family who know what's going on, and there are a couple of very, very close friends. But most people who, when they learned about her death, said, I had no idea, I suspected nothing, she never said anything. And in the past, you've expressed some reservation about that. How are you feeling about it today? I mean, this is one of the rare cases, Michael, which I, I just have to just throw down my arms and say, I, I don't know. I really can't place myself in, in those shoes. Because to me, I, 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 it seems weird, especially for somebody like Nora, who lived so much of her personal life publicly or projected it into the characters that she wrote. That seems weird to me, but it also seems like you're depriving yourself of a lot of sort of affection as well as you're depriving your your fan bases an opportunity. But I guess like that's interesting to hear you put it that way. To me it's a question of how you receive support. You know, what it means to you to feel supported. Does fan mail do that? You know, do the weak tie friends writing a note or paying a visit in the hospital or taking you out to a meal or whatever, you know, does that feel like support? That is a subjective question. That 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 is that changes for every individual. And I I should I ever get to a point in life where I, you know, get news from a doctor that says you may only have so long to to live and I've got to make a decision about who I do and don't tell? I do think that's the way to think about that question. Yeah. Is what does it mean to be loved and supported, you know, as I enter into this process that that is the final chapter here? Yeah. And I kind of imagine that's how she thought about it. Yeah. And it's you know? it's interesting too how much joy came out of her in those final years post-diagnosis. Yeah. And what I think about is really interesting. It, it, if we all had a diagnosis that we're going to die, and guess what we do? We're all going to die, Michael. You right. know, it's we, we a question we, of when, but yes, yeah. We, we don't know that yeah, it's yeah. going to be five to ten years, but right. we know it's going to be anywhere from one day to, I don't know, let's call it a hundred years, just for yeah. the sake of it. I think that's a safe window you've outlined. Yeah, sure. we've, we've all got that diagnosis, right? And so it's like, it's possibly the biggest lesson out there is that we've all been diagnosed. Right. So, what are you going to do about it? And how are you going to find the joy? And, you know, she had a smaller constraint to do it in, but I don't think we really evolve enough as a world, let's say spiritually, until we realize that we truly have that diagnosis. All right. Let's take another break. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, category eight. This is where we start to get into the more introspective questions. The first of these is Man in the Mirror. What did they think about their own reflection when they saw it? So this is one of the rare cases that she caught on tape saying, I avoid mirrors. Um, you know, that thing you start doing at a certain age, which is you see a mirror and you just close your eyes and then you kind of... And then if something bad is looking at you, just close them again. There's a few other things that I found kind of odd and interesting. So in the documentary that her son produced, they highlighted that all the sisters say that like their parents never told them they were beautiful. 
Yeah. And then I think of this other fact that she essentially- And I, I got to say, I just want to pause. I think she's an attractive woman. I don't know that she's like my type necessarily, but I find her attractive. I think she's undoubtedly. I, I would challenge anyone yeah. to find her unattractive. She She's a yeah. type, but yeah. You're right. And then the other the other clue that I was curious about is, you know, she is essentially the character in all of these movies. You know, in When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless in Seattle, which are essentially all played by Meg Ryan, who, for all intents and purposes, was a bombshell in the 80s and 90s, right? So I wonder about that. I wonder about being cast as somebody else who is an unconditional, like, symbol of elevated beauty. Okay, so she may say, I avoid mirrors. Yeah, yeah so I, I laid out three cases against, but my answer is yes. She does she like likes it. her reflection. Yeah, okay, yeah. Interesting. There's the the confidence that she wields, and how how declarative she is, and how much she owns herself, and how much she takes agency and control of every situation. Sometimes too far, as evidenced by the little black backpack. But yeah, I'm going a yes. High on self esteem and high on liking herself. I had the exact same thing. I came to the exact same answer based on the exact same set of reasons that even like her early essays are about, you know, not having big enough breasts and things like that. Like yes. there's a lot of self-criticism that gets worked out in her writing and that gets said in interviews. Ultimately, I see a lot of confidence that says, you know, I actually like it. When all jokes are aside, I actually like it. I love that you brought that up because she actually wrote in one of those essays the exact sentence because she talks about that she wrestled with the the size of her breasts. And she did write the line of the exact words that said, if I had larger breasts, I would be a completely different person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? So what? I don't. And this is who I am. This is how I'm living it out. And I've got dynamic features in every other thing that probably matter a lot more. Yeah. And I think that's the essence of who she was. I agree. I agree. Category nine, outgoing message. Like Man in the Mirror, how do we think they felt about the sound of their own voice when they heard it on an answering machine or outgoing voicemail? Also, would they have the humility to record it themselves or would they use the default setting on an outgoing message? I struggled with this one. Let me start then. So, yeah. you know, I heard the phrase whip smart come up a few times and Aaron used it as well. And I love that phrase. Uh, I love that phrase, period. But I love it to describe her. I mean, she is incredibly articulate. And not all writers are. Sometimes writers can only... No, she's a good writer and a good talker. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. And so she has to like the sound of her own voice. And really, the intonation is quite good, too. It's nice. It's pleasant. It's educational. It's soothing. So I, I think there's no way she couldn't like the sound of her own voice. The humility, I am very conflicted on. That's where I was most conflicted. I Again, the same answer. I, I kind of do think that there is a kind of elitist vibe totally. around it did, your effort. We, right? First line of the obituary died in Manhattan and how much we loved that, right? Right, right. And, and, and I do think that the company she's keeping and the kind of, I don't know, culture of uh, creative intelligentsia that she swirls around, you know, has, has a snobbiness to it. So I think she probably wouldn't. My instinct, even though I kind of don't, like it sounds insulting to her to say, I don't think she would. I don't think she would. I don't think she would either. As close as those relationships were, I think we've, I think there's a little, a little too much man. There's a little above it. There's a little above itness there. Yeah. A little little bit. Yep. You're born into a Hollywood family. Hard to get that out of your head. There you go. Okay. Category 10. We're doing a little bit of rebranding here. We're now going to call this category Control Z. This is where we look for the big do-overs, the things in life that we might have done differently. I had one. I wrote marrying Carl, but not because of the relationship itself. I think the compromise she made, the one that she never should have done and that she would like to do over, is moving to Washington, D.C. She is a New York woman through and through. She was born there, even though she grew up in Beverly Hills. I think she felt at home in Manhattan. And I think when she married Carl Bernstein and said, okay, I'll move to D.C., those kinds of geographic moves mean a lot. For a creative, I mean, where absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely, right? And I think that she was not a D.C. woman. So it's the marriage, kind of, but even more than that, the willingness to move and relocate. I think that that's her big control Z moment. Okay. Uh, what do you got? Also Carl Bernstein related. Uh, I feel a little bad that we're, we're honing so much in it. 
So, you know, this affair that he had, she aired very publicly. There were some statements made about what is worse, those who cheat or those that expose their children to this fact. And I wonder about that. Again, this is one of those things that I don't know how to place myself in those shoes. But I wonder if she would control Z, that whole public airing of it, for the sake of the children. And her son in the documentary, in his face-to-face with his father, Carl Bernstein, was like, yeah, for a long time, I was really, really pissed at you. And I don't know how to deal with that, man. Like, it's, it's, it is definitely between her and him. I'm not sure how important it is that the kids know this and what steps you need to take to protect the kids from that reality. I think it's, well, okay, first of all, it's complicated. And I don't know what's right or wrong here. I know I would definitely hit control and then my other finger would sort of hover over the Z button on this one if I'm really looking at it. Because I think what the risk is, is that your ego and pride are getting involved in an unhealthy way. You know, even if it hurts the kids, I need to air this shit out publicly because fuck him for what he did, right? That's pride. And that may feel good in the moment, and that may be the kind of thing you want to do over. I also think another interpretation of the same thing is... I have to stand up for myself publicly, and I need my children to see me stand up for myself publicly. And like it or not, we are public figures, and this needs to be out there. And maybe both things are true, Amit. You know, maybe both things are true. Whether it's a big Control-Z moment, I really don't know. And I don't know how to approach these. But I, I do think parenting is so much, and I've said this before, about modeling. And I do think that if you're Nora Ephron and you're an icon and you know you want to stand up for what for for certain principles, there is a I have to stand up for myself here. And I need to do that in a way that is consistent with the fact that I am a public persona and that my cheating husband is a public persona. But I think you're right to wonder about this one. And I think that it is a it is a control Z able moment. So I, I'm not I'm not resolved on what's right or wrong here, and I do wonder if she questioned it. Because to be clear, this is not just letting the inner circle know and letting the neighbors know. This is airing it to the international. No, this is the Washington Post knows. This is. Oh, the I New mean, York it was Times a movie. About yeah, it was a movie, it. right? Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson and Mike Nichols know. Yeah, everybody yeah. knew who was of age at that time. I, 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 there's a part of me that also admires it, though, too, man. I don't know, but I think it's complicated. I think it's complicated. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. This is where we ask, which one would we most want to do with our dead celebrity? This may be a question of what drug sounds like the most fun to partake with this person, or another philosophy is that a particular kind of drug might allow access to a part of them that we are most curious about. I kept this pretty simple and went coffee. I think that she's funny, and I think that um, she's witty, like really witty, witty and like it's coming at you fast. And I want my brain moving at a pace that keeps up with her wit. And I would love to just like have an energetic, caffeinated conversation with Nora Ephron. I think that'd just be so much fun. And, you know, somewhere in Manhattan. I mean, not so different from the coffee image that I had with Gene Wilder. But but this one's a little bit more like, I want a strong cup of coffee. Let's go. Let's talk. I want to hear it. and I think we could go in a lot of different directions. I think it could be about politics. I think it could be about feminism. I think it could be about parenting. I think it could be about all kinds of things that I think she, like, I would just love to I don't, pick her brain, to use that phrase. And I'd like to do it with a nice, strong cup of coffee. Uh, I'm about to emasculate the hell out of myself, but rosé all day. Oh, good um, man. So she, uh, she had a love for pink champagne. In fact, it was served at her memorial service. So I didn't specify pink champagne, but I went with rosé. And this goes back to- Chaudé pink? <laughs> <laughs> this is what you said uh, about being a conflicted romantic. And yeah. uh, I just want to hang out. I mean, right, she's funny. She's quick-witted. But she also 
it is rare to have that and also be such a lifelong romantic. And I think that colors her view of the world. And I'm not even necessarily talking about love and about romance, but I think the type of person that holds that idea of romanticism alive can see the colors of the world differently, can see the scenes of nature, can hear different words and meanings in songs. And I think it would be a hell of a hangout and it would be a funny one too. That's what I want. I think I think we have the start of a script here. I feel like we've got a movie. Um, Amit and Nora. It would be like the, the I, sequel to Julie and Julia. I remake her yeah, films. Or maybe we need to get in touch with Rob Reiner. We'll see. Okay. Uh, he, he, he might he might be into this. Okay. We've arrived. Our final category, the Vanderbeek, named after James Vanderbeek, who famously said in Varsity Blues, I don't want your life. Amit, do you want Nora Ephron's life? So one thing that we didn't get into enough that I, I don't really like that much about her work and her creation, it was always about falling in love and that act. It was not mm. much about the enduring present moment of after love. And I don't like that. And like I'm there's so much of Bollywood, which I've I've been exposed to, like every movie is like falling in love. And I think Hollywood has less of that problem. But she always did that. She overemphasized the falling part. And I think a lot of it was her commitment to revealing the dynamic between men and women, which is best expressed probably during that phase. But yeah, then, I was gonna say this does not make for good movies necessarily, like a normal, boring, happy marriage. Great. No, like, it uh, definitely does. Somebody as smart and quick-witted uh, as her, yeah. absolutely she can make it. So Yeah, you're right. I, I don't like that. That's kind of the problem that I have with the art and the creation. I, I like a lot of it. Mm. That's the one way in which I'm conflicted. All of these curveballs thrown at her in especially, you know, the second marriage to Carl and how that became so much of a centerpiece of her life, you know, I... I Definitely don't want that to happen to me. But to be built with the tenacity and the conflicted romantic, but to still have the romantic at the end of that, I love this woman for that. I love that she is a party thrower. I don't think I want to be a hard ass as much as she was. I think she kind of had to be as a result of the times. I don't think you necessarily, I, I don't think like Alina Dunham, who is probably a very good example of a modern-day Nora Ephron has to be that as much. I, I wouldn't want to be that, but you know what? It's the times, right? You can't change that. It's the, it's the present that it was in. And so over the course of, of the last couple of weeks, I've really grown to like this woman. It was, it was a bit of a love-hate, you know, um, with some of the things. But if I just take one step back and look at the arc and where she saw the romantic in it outside of of love i just mean in the joy of life and the way that she embraced it at the end and and aired everything in between yes i want your life nora Ephron. excellent answer and i agree with a lot of it i mean i think you know, i was going to go a slightly different direction than you uh, only in one way it's the word icon has come up a couple times in this conversation. And I do think that Nora Ephron is sort of on that bubble of celebrity icon status that, that she's remembered. Like she's, she's somebody who was, I think much to her chagrin invited onto every panel about women in Hollywood. I think that she was asked to comment on that in a way that was probably exhausting to her. But I also think that she is a trailblazer in a male-dominated industry and is making statements ahead of her time. And every time we've looked at somebody who's sort of approaching icon status on Famous and Gravy, I wonder about the responsibility of that. I wonder about the added burden that places on you and how hard it is to live up to that as a complicated human being who people want to see ideals represented. And you know, how much do you have to think about? How much does that mess with your head to live up to those standards? I'm thinking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm thinking about Mary Tyler Moore. You know, like, this has come up before Betty White. This has come up before on our show. 
So that gives me a little bit of pause because I do think that that is hard and I don't really want to be famous and I really don't think I want to be an icon, right? I think it's like even less just because I think it's hard, you know? I see a woman here who lived a life where everything is copy and with some exceptions, yes, she was able to write the script for her life and did so and was dealt incredibly hard blows, but also uh, bounced back and turned trauma into creativity and had a joie de vie. I mean, I, I don't know that I need a whole hell of a lot more than that. I want an experience-rich life. I want to meet interesting people. I want to taste d- d- wonderful food. I want to throw amazing parties. I, I want to travel the world. I want to have a family. And I see like so many boxes checked here. There are some things that give me pause. I wish there was a little bit more humility. And I do wonder about the burden of an icon-like status, but that's not enough to sway me. I also want your life, Nora Ephron. So I am also a yes. Okay, two yeses. Michael, you are Nora Ephron you have died, and before you now is St. Peter, the proxy for the gateway to all things afterlife. What is your unique contribution to the world? I may be wrong, but I think that everybody down there on planet Earth is looking for love. And a lot of people are especially looking for love in a relationship and with a soulmate. I think we all need that on some level. I think we all need to receive it, and I think we all need to give it. And that is a hard and complicated and confusing process. And it's the source of a lot of pain and conflict, but it's also the source of a lot of validation. I don't know how we go about doing that, but I do know that storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and how we make sense of our own needs and our own virtues how we give love and how we receive it. That's what I did. I told stories about love and all its beauty and all its complexity. In that way, I think I helped people understand themselves, their partners, and one of the things we care most about in this world and in life. For that, I hope you let me in. Thanks for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. Thanks so much to Erin Carlson for joining us. Her book on Nora Ephron's movies is called I'll Have What She's Having. Highly recommend it. Also keep an eye out for her new book coming out this fall called No Crying in Baseball, The Inside Story of a League of Their Own, Big Stars, Dugout Drama, and a Home Run for Hollywood. That's due out in early September. We will link to it in the show notes. Famous and Gravy listeners, if you're interested in participating in our opening quiz where we reveal the dead celebrity, please send us an email. You can reach us at hello at famousandgravy.com. That's hello at famousandgravy.com. If you're enjoying our show, please tell your friends. You can find us on Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days. We are also now on Threads. Our handle is at Famous and Gravy. We also have a newsletter, which you can sign up for on our website, famousandgravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Jacob Weiss. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.